Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today on the Lead Chat podcast. We have a very special guest today and um, it's Dr. Jess Beer. Um, she's an animal or a vet behavioral specialist. Um, hi Jess. Hi, thank you so much for uh, inviting me. Uh, just a note, I'm not actually a specialist. We're unlucky enough in New Zealand, we don't have any specialists in veterinary behaviour. Um, obviously, that's a very specific title in the veterinary industry. So uh, I am a behaviourist with further education in veterinary behaviour, but not quite a specialist. That's that's a whole big step up from me. Um, but yeah, I, I do like to say that I do know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Very modest of you. Obviously, you know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, you have um, quite an interesting bio. You um, have been involved with um, welfare for quite a while. Can you tell us a bit about that, how that happened? What was your involvement there? Oh, I absolutely love the work that I've done in welfare. And I, I miss, I used to do a charity trip somewhere globally every single year. So I've worked with a lot of Spain neuter charities in, oh, Thailand, Panama, Mexico, uh, Gibraltar, Portugal, uh, all over the world, India, just amazing experiences. Uh, and I really miss that now that I'm sort of back and a bit more settled in New Zealand. But luckily, I have the opportunity to work with some local charities, including the SPCA in Auckland, yeah. um, which get a lot of flack, but do an amazing job. Mm. Um, and, and I think definitely with behavior, a lot of my clients uh, come from a rescue background, mm. patients, I suppose, my, the clients, not necessarily, but the patients do and and in behavior obviously there's a lot of trauma in in the shelter and welfare world and finding ways to overcome that um, is is a challenge but so rewarding when you see them just come out of their shell and learn to trust again yeah yeah yeah. so so I wish I had more time to do both aspects but it's it's trying to pick and choose where I can put my efforts in yeah yeah so for those who don't know um Jess is the owner of Kiwi Vet Behaviour and she has been in business for 15 years and she worked in the UK and New Zealand and um, in 2014 she gained her membership from the ANZ CVS in Veterinary Behaviour um, and yeah Dr. Jess brings a wealth of knowledge to this talk and the reason why we are having this talk today is that vets um, can sometimes sit between a rock and a hard place when they um, need to evaluate the needs of a patient, but also then take into account their own health and safety and welfare and the risk that some patients might pose to that. And um, a while ago, there was a very controversial case. And out of that, there um, came a document that the NZBA drew up the recommended best practice. And I really suggest that um, you go and look for that um, document on the NZBA website um, for that resource, uh, resource. And what I found very interesting, Jess, is that it says managing reactive, anxious, and aggressive behaviors in the veterinary setting. So it says behaviors. It doesn't say um, dogs. So the, what I get out of that is kind of like, the dog, it might not be an aggressive dog, but the situation they're placed in brings out certain behaviours. That That's absolutely true. And that was particularly worded in that fashion because it's, it's important to identify that aggression is just a behaviour. It is not a diagnosis. Mm. And so it's not a label. 
that we can give that that animal's personality is an aggressive dog. But what will happen is behaviors that we classify as aggressive will occur or can occur in this range of situations. And obviously for our discussion today, that's the veterinary clinic. Mm -hmm. Um, And we commonly do see more aggressive behaviors in dogs potentially that show no aggression anywhere else. Mm. And I think um, we're we're starting to recognize how much of a role fear plays in that. And recognizing the emotion that is causing those behaviors is crucial to formulating a plan on how to manage that most effectively for both Mm. our safety and their safety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, their safety as well. Yeah, not just our safety as well. And, having the best and the safety of the other animals in the clinic <laughs> yeah. and and um, and people outside, yeah, and the owners. So we have we do have a big responsibility. Yeah. And what's worth pointing out as well um, is not just their physical safety, but their mental and emotional safety. Mm-hmm. Because when we start to talk about the issue of unwanted behaviours in the vet clinic, we've got to realise that our interactions with these animals will formulate how they react in the future. So not only do we want to be helping these animals that are already struggling, we want to start having an awareness of how to prevent those animals feeling like that in the first place. There's so much we can do from puppyhood onwards to actually create the veterinary space as not a threatening, horrible place to be, a place they can trust us and that hopefully good things happen as well as the unnecessary, the, the necessary, sorry, mm-hmm. um, less than nice things like vaccinations mm-hmm. or surgeries. So building that trust with a lot of very positive encounters will go a long way to prevent some of the issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that probably I may talk and talk, <laughs> there's a lot to say, <laughs> but we're all seeing most particularly in the last two years, the COVID puppies. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a, a huge increase in issues And a lot of that is because of the curbside work that we did. The pets had to come in for procedures with unknown people in a scary environment without their support person. Mm. Um, and it's, and, and couple that with their lack of, um, other appropriate socialization experiences outside of the vet clinic. We've got animals that do not have the resilience or the capacity to cope with a stressful situation. And more often than not, that will lead to fearful, reactive and aggressive behaviors, which is exactly what is quoted in those guidelines. Very interesting. Um, The practices, many of the practices that I've been visiting, you know, when you just have um, informal chats, um, it's definitely something that comes up. The, the COVID puppies and um, the challenge that this poses to the clinic. And um, one I think we're hitting, we're hitting that um, absolute peak of it as well because the majority of those puppies are also hitting adolescence. <laughs> and adolescents are just difficult. Even the most perfect dog is difficult in adolescence. So we add that um, cacophony of hormones and age changes and interactions and and unfortunate experiences potentially and we've we've just got an absolute volcano of of unwanted behaviors so um, I think some empathy out there for vets you're not alone this is not you suddenly not managing these dogs it is a a large number of factors leading to difficult encounters in the vet clinic Mm -hmm. yeah and um what did you say is the perception under New Zealand vets? Um, you know, do they feel like they always need to place their patient first, that it's part of their duty and um, they sometimes put their own needs and welfare and safety on the back burner just to, you know, um, 
be able to provide the service that they feel they should be providing. Yeah, I I think there's I think yes, we we do feel that pressure, and I think there's multiple reasons. We do have the Animal Welfare Act, so we do have what we would consider professional and legal responsibilities, which luckily the council has elaborated on for these guidelines. I think that's been helpful. Um, but we also have uh, personality types. Vets are empathetic, and and we we put a high expectation on our ability to do everything and so when we're not perhaps sufficiently trained to deal with uh, aggressive um, or reactive behaviors but we feel an obligation to help and we feel an assumption that we should know what to do Mm -hmm. Uh, and often we're not trained to deal with that in the best possible way so it is very easy to put ourselves or our staff in into a position of risk so um and add on that time pressure. So all of a sudden you've got all of this happening and you're already running behind by half an hour and you've only got 15 minutes to deal with this very complicated emotional <laughs> basket case. There is a lot going on. And and I think it is time that we tell ourselves we can step back, reassess and actually set our clinics up to have protocols to deal with this before it happens, during and after, so that we minimize exacerbating the problem. That's our other issue is when we have a difficult pet, and it's not just dogs, certainly cats, mm. <laughs> we've all had difficult cats, <laughs> even rabbits, if you're dealing with lizards or terrapins or anything. You know, if, if they're difficult, we often try and try and do our job too quickly, when in actual fact that makes the situation worse, and yeah. the next time that pet comes in, it's going to be even harder. Yeah. So the best advice I give everybody, I think vet clinics... Um, owners and pets, teaching pets, take a deep breath. Mm. You, you, you often find you haven't actually stopped to take a deep breath. You're very tense, you're rushing, and it's far too easy to make the wrong decision without realizing you're making it. Because remember, these dogs are reading what our body is telling them, yeah. not what we're saying. So if we're tense and rushed and fearful and feel obligated to do something, there's a lot going on in our body language. And they know that, they read that. So yeah. take a moment take a breath and, and hopefully have your clinic have a plan to help back you up in how to more appropriately deal with these particular cases. Yes, and we'll get to those plans shortly. I definitely want to talk about that, but I can um, definitely say that as in, when I was a new grad, you know, I had this feeling to um, please and um, show that I'm capable. And like you said, it's a personality type and... I was so privileged, you know, about in my, I think, um, second job, so the, my boss, then boss, actually informed me that, you know what, you don't have to treat all cases right there and then. And you can't And you don't back. have to know everything. You don't have yeah. to know everything, yes. You, and you can't we, we need to start that. embracing that, that as a vet, I'm, I'm actually more than 15, I'm 20 years out now, and I love the fact that I will learn something new every day. Um, and, and we've got to start loving that about our job instead of feeling inadequate yeah. about it. And I would never want to be a new grad again. Wow. <laughs> so scary. The, the, the pressure and the stress. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So we've, we've got to look after, as we all well know, our own mental health as well as uh, those of our patients. That's right. And um, you briefly mentioned the Animal Welfare Act and um, very interesting summary also in the Recommended Best Practice NZVA document. And um, in the Animal Welfare Act, it, ma- it mentions that um, there's a legal obligation that's placed on the owner and the person in charge to alleviate unreasonable or unnecessary pain or distress. And I think 
that's where the idea ends for some people and they if that sticks. But um, it's also clarified that the person in charge, if you are the vet, then um, you only have a legal obligation towards that animal once they are under your care in your clinic that they've been admitted. Um, so it's, it is a bit of a difference there. And then also um, we have our code, our vet code, code of practice, and that makes it very clear as well, actually, that we can step back see that it's not expected to prioritize an animal's welfare over the safety of ourselves or the team that we work with. And I think the team includes the owner. Um, so around that yeah. animal, we are a full team. It's the vet, uh, the rest of the practice staff, but then also the owner, the, that's the complete team that with, we're working without with. Without a doubt. And as soon as we're talking about difficult dogs that don't trust vets, if we don't get the owners on board with the plan to do a lot of the care in regards to muzzle training them, having appropriate gear on, having taught the dog some basics like sit or a chin rest or touch or down, if, if we don't have them on board, then you cannot expect yourself to be successful with that patient because um, you, you are almost the consultant on that family, um, but it's it's the guardian and the pet and their family that will be doing the majority of the work. Um, there, there's still this attitude that, and it, and it came up in some of the media reports regarding that Tauranga case, in that we should know everything and we should be able to handle every dog. Yeah. And, and the reality is um, we may have the skills and we may have the knowledge, but we do not have the relationship with that pet mm. to, to do the kind of things that we're needing to do. And there is a strong onus, I feel, on the owner to have socialized, trained and prepared this dog to cope with things like a stranger touching them. Mm. And and a lot of that is lacking and, and it is it should not be the vet's fault for not being able to do that. We don't have some magical wand that allows us to do whatever we want to an animal just because we're a vet. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, and in, in historically, when we've ignored the emotional welfare of animals, we have got away with doing a lot more because the animals will go into shutdown mode. They become freeze, frozen, mm. do not move to stop bad things happening. And, and we've neglected in the past to recognize the emotional consequences of that. Yes, it has allowed us to do our job, but eventually we're finding these dogs will snap mm. or these cats will snap. But what we really want, as you said, as a team, we want the owners to prepare these pets. We want to be advising them on how to prepare them for veterinary care in the future mm. so that when they do come in, we can transfer that trust so that the um, the pets have a, a reason to trust us rather than separation and forcing them to, to go through what we need to be done. Yeah. Um, and so, again, back to if we don't have the guardians and the clients on board to help, we're not going to have success. And I see that every day in my practice. Mm. The, the best outcomes are those dedicated owners who do their homework, who do the work because they're with that animal potentially 24 hours a day. And we see them maybe, you know, 15 minutes once a year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so as much as we are part of the team, we're an advisor and a consultant and we have the knowledge to share, but we can't do it all um, in that, in that moment. So yeah. That's what they need to teach us more about at university. I think that communication with the humans, because we get into vet to be working with animals and then you graduate and realize oh, it's all about the people. Oh, yeah, certainly. <laughs> 
Um, so you put together a really, really great toolkit and you gave some advice on triaging a reactive dog. Yeah, it was, we wanted something simple to allow us to make a decision on how to handle these dogs because I, I think when it comes to only having a small period of time to deal with them, you need a really simple way of clarifying and classifying what kind of precautions need to be taken with that particular dog. Yeah. Um, so traffic light um, systems are used, you know, in, in probably all forms of life because everyone knows what it means. Mm. Green is good and red is no, stop. But but no, I think, I think it makes it easier and it also allows you to potentially color code these animals from admit on the, um, oh. on the incoming forms, yeah. on their leashes, on their harnesses, on their cages, on their muzzles when, you, when they wake up. All of these things, so it's very simple to see from a distance that's a red dog, so therefore these are the rules around handling that particular dog. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you look at the the guidelines, if we're looking at um, green dogs, so social and non-reactive dogs, these are our typical happy-go-lucky dogs that solicit affection. They show positive social behaviors. So not just that they'll take treats or come up to you because even nervous dogs will do that, but they need to be loose and waggy and relaxed. Mm -hmm. And and this is where coding these animals requires you to have an understanding of dog body language. Because when we get into the orange zone, um, and this is what we would say caution or unsure. And this is the majority of dogs that come into vet clinics. Uh, there's a lovely illustration by Sophia Yin that we use, which is signs of fear and anxiety in dogs. Mm. And it outlines all those um, particular symptoms of stress, fear, and anxiety. Is that the... And so... Oh, sorry, Jess. Are those the illustrations yeah. that also use to educate children? Yes, she yes. has a... Very nice. Sophia Yin, Cattle Dog Publishing, combined with... Lily Chin Doggy Drawings mm-hmm. um, have an amazing lot of resources and you can actually download those for free or for a donation off their website um, which is doggydrawings.net mm. I think we could probably put some links um, in the podcast for people to look that up yeah. because they have them for cats, dogs they have them for how to interact with animals how to not interact with animals particularly around kids Yeah, um, really really simple pictures pictograms of of explanation yeah um and they've got lovely cartoonish um images to accentuate the body language that we want to pay attention to what is their tail doing are they tucked down with their body what are their eyes doing is their brow furrowed are they licking their lips or yawning when they're not eating or tired yeah all of those are those early signs of fear and anxiety and those are the ones that we want to be aware of to not push them further sending them into that red zone and, and it's worth pointing out that sometimes you don't see them doing anything. A dog that just isn't doing anything and staying really still is also cautious. That's not a dog that I can go up and do anything to. And mm-hmm. it may seem obvious, but it's very easy to think, um, I'm not seeing any warning signs so I can go up to this dog. And that's not necessarily. I agree. I agree. I had a recurring patient, a German Shepherd, and um, it had inflammatory bowel disease. So it was forever in the clinic and I I just had a feeling that I couldn't trust the dog. He was just strange but never showed anything and I would always do a full clinical um, even though I knew what was wrong you know still just do a full clinical quickly and I went down on the hunches and I had the stethoscope on his chest and I heard this deep growling and I moved away and I looked and I thought, did I maybe hear something else, a chair moving? What was that? And I looked at the dog and I looked at the owner 
nothing changed. And I went down again. I thought, oh, it's just me. Listened, and there it was again. <gasps> and I... I'm glad you went, <gasps> because that is terrifying. Oh, and that worked. is the moment before a bite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And no, nothing gave it away. And I told the owner, listen, um, I think we will just have to take some precautionary measures here. And he didn't want to believe me. He, he absolutely, because I couldn't even see it. I didn't, I couldn't identify it until I heard the Sometimes, dog coming. Especially with those guarding breeds. So Ooh. your Rottweilers, Dobermans, um, Mastiffs and, and Shepherds being still is a big warning sign, oh. a big warning sign. Yeah. And, and there will be other, uh, you know, aspects, more subtle body language, mm-hmm. but it's not overt. Mm. And, and, and that's why so many people will say, look, a bite came out of nowhere mm. and that never happens. Mm. We didn't see the warning signs, but there are always warning signs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in those particular cases, yeah, they're often potentially very well-trained dogs. Oh. They may have been trained using aversives, which would mean that they've had those early warning signs punished out of them. Oh. So you don't see the warning signs of, you know, slinking away or lip lifting or growling. Mm. If that has been punished out of the dog, they have no ability to warn you until they bite you. So just re-emphasizing if you want to be good at your job, you need to understand body language. You need to be able to read these animals. And that yeah. goes for cats as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So we're, yeah. Yeah, we're focusing mostly on dogs here because that's their hot topic at the moment. But cats, I think, yeah. Be- yeah, because there's the legal action yeah. around dogs hurting people, we don't have that in the case of cats, yeah. even though I would say there are more injuries <laughs> due to cats in vet clinics, um, more hospitalizations due to cat scratches and bites than dogs. But but they're shrugged off because we're bigger than them and we don't feel as threatened, yeah. even though they can hurt us. Yeah. Um, but you also raised um, a point just a moment ago, actually, is communicating to the owners. So so you'll have a dog that comes in, and this is a case was um, described to me by another colleague that they were trying to convince this owner that their dog was dangerous mm. because this dog was going to bite mm. and the owner refused to believe. So that's going back to that having them on board with you because if they don't believe their dog is a threat, they're not going to take those precautions that you need to do your job. And I would be very firm in those particular cases. If the owner does not get on board with appropriate precautions, then they do not need to be your patient. They do not. Um, It's not fair on the dog to be put in that situation and it's not fair for you to take on that responsibility. Mm. Very much my personal opinion, but I think that ties in with the recommendations that we're getting from the NZVA. Yeah. And oh, we haven't finished our triage. No, we haven't um, finished our yeah, triage. The, the, so, yeah. the final one is obviously red. So that's yeah. extreme caution and make an assumption they will react with aggression to, to you know, friendly overtures or unfriendly overtures. Mm-hmm. And those are the really obvious ones. You know, that's the shepherd barking at you from the car and pulling and lunging on the leash. Mm-hmm. Um, they're really obvious, mm-hmm. I know. But um, what I want to focus in a bit more on is those orange ones because they're the ones that we often miss and they're the ones that come into the clinic and get pushed beyond what they can cope with and that's when a bite will happen. Yeah. Um, but the red ones are also, it, it's nice and overt, it's clear, the owners are like, oh yeah, I know he's a bit difficult and, it, and it's hopefully easier to implement those precautions like they must wear a muzzle, they're not comfortable here, let's include some medications. But I think we're going to talk a little bit more about those, aren't we? We're going to get to that definitely, yes. So, um, how would you approach an aggressive or fearful patient? I think that's what we all would like to know. Well, here's the easy one. Don't. (laughs) Full stop. (laughs) 
<laughs> if they are pro- promoting an aggressive stance, the majority of the time that is defensive aggression. That is being aggressive to make you go away. Uh-huh. And if you ignore that message and go towards them, they will continue. They will escalate. Yeah. So, so the reality is um, you need to be at a distance where they're no longer feeling um, threatened by you. Mm. And that often means put the dog in the car. Um, and, and they come into the clinic and you talk about the next steps. Mm. Now that could be as simple as, look, I need you to, um, take some medication and go home and come back this afternoon. Mm-hmm. I need this dog to be calmer. Mm-hmm. And we have some guidelines in the recommendations about being able to administer medication without examining an animal. There are some safe products such as gabapentin, very easy go to. There are other options out there as well. The key with drugs is use something you're comfortable with mm-hmm. a note that gabapentin is not a be-all and end-all and a lot of dogs don't seem to have responded to it but it will still help to get them to the point where potentially injectable or orally administered transmucosal medications could be appropriate but i think that's the key you don't oh i'm going to go up and take that dog and it'll be fine because that's not our job that's not even a dog trainer's job to do that mm-hmm. so what you need to do is remove the dog or remove yourself from that situation and the easiest is just wait in the car and then talk about what is going to be most effective first question do we need to see this dog today you know has he been hit by a car is he having seizures is this something we have to deal with today or not mm-hmm. the majority of the time it's not the majority of the time this can be postponed for a day or two yeah and the biggest downside i think for practice owners is oh well i've lost that appointment slot when am i going to fit them in again make yeah. it happen just make it work because trying to force through with these aggressive dogs they will only get worse the Owners will potentially mistrust you more and more because yeah. you can't handle their dog. Um, and and someone gets bitten or you can't get near the dog. So yeah. it, it is a question of picking and choosing. If the pet doesn't get seen, it's more, actually, we're going to win because we're going to do this better. Yeah. We're, we're going to do this more appropriately. We're going to do this in a kinder way. And everyone's going to come out of this in a better place. Yeah. And, and if that is simple as I looked at that dog, it looks sore, but I can't touch it. I feel confident that I'm going to give them some medication to take away that pain. Um, and then we're going to see you tomorrow. Then you are not, you're not giving up. You're not denying that need to, to provide for the animal's welfare. Yeah. But you're doing it in a manner that is safe rather than saying, I've got to examine this animal, cause them pain and cause me to be at risk of biting. That, that is not appropriate for mm-hmm. anyone's um, emotional or mental well-being. Yeah. If you've already got an aggressive dog, determine whether it needs to be managed or not. Yeah. And then muzzling. So a quick point on muzzles. You should not be putting muzzles on dogs. Ideally, the owners are because they have that level of trust. Mm -hmm. Now, that sometimes doesn't work. And you might need a little model dog in the clinic to show them how to put the muzzle on. You want a basket muzzle. You don't want those nylon ones because, Mm -hmm. A, they can still bite with a nylon muzzle. They're a lot more uncomfortable and the pets can't pant or drink or take treats appropriately, mm-hmm. which means they're going to continue to feel stressed in the situation. Yeah. So you really want those solid basketball basket muzzles that are easy to put on with a clip, not a buckle. So the newer version. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you show the owner how to put it on. They put it on, make it nice and tight. And then everyone can relax a bit more because you have a dog that can't. They can still hurt you because you can get a nasty punch in the head with a muzzled, muzzled dog, <laughs> yeah. but they cannot bite you, which is where a lot of the damage comes from. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then it may be a question of once they're out of the car, maybe they're less territorial. Maybe they are more comfortable. You bring them in, pop them in a consult room with their owner with the lights dim, some adaptal sprayed, give that dog a chance to chill out, mm. see if it's willing to relax and take treats. Mm. And then you may be able to proceed at that point. It may have just been that initial burst of 
defensive aggression from the Mm. dog and they may settle down. And that's where you may come in and say, okay, looking at your body language, I'm not going to touch you, just looking at you, you're in the orange zone now. So I'm just going to sit down and ignore you and let you get used to me. Five minutes or so while I talk to your owner about what the problem is and then determine what form the examination will now take, which is probably not going to be a full examination. As you mentioned, you had the regular IBD dog in. Yes, we're taught to examine these animals from um, nose to tail every time they come in, but that may be inappropriate for an aggressive dog. Mm. Why would we put them through an invasive contact with us when that is only going to make things difficult and isn't necessarily going to add to your diagnostic choices or your um, treatment choices? Yeah, yeah. Which may be a question of, look, they clearly have an ear infection. They're not going to let me put a scope down there. I'm not going to force them to do that. So why don't we see if the owner can get a sample from the ear? They're quite useful if, uh, if they have a good bond. The owner can do some of this examination. They could pick up the foot for me to look at the sore pad. I do not need to touch this dog. Mm. I need to get enough information to determine how to proceed. And that might be go home with steroids and pain relief, come back in a couple of days and the dog's like, oh, I feel so much better. I like you now. Mm. So preventing us making it a big deal can go a long way. Mm. It is so important to tailor each case to the individual dog and the individual owner. If the guardian is not capable of handling, maybe a question of, look, come back with another family member who's going to be better at managing this dog next time we see you. And they're clearly uncomfortable with the muzzle. So why don't you spend a week or so getting them comfortable wearing their own muzzle? So it's one less stress, but an added safety measure for you when you come back to the clinic next week. Yeah. And something that's also touched on is developing a clinic protocol so that everyone in the clinic knows what's expected of them. If, for instance, there Absolutely. is a fearful patient um, having a dedicated area where you know, okay, maybe if there's uh, a sign flipped on the door, don't go in. We have a patient in there that's just taking a breather. Um, so just talking that through with your clinic team as well and having a plan around that. Having a plan and having, okay, this dog is red, so therefore these are the precautions we must take. Good. So, um, Jess, I see here that some of the... Um, Measures that we can consider is, like I said, using a muzzle, preferably a basket basket muzzle, and then a towel wrap. Is that for smaller patients? You mean like a complete wrap? And larger, but generally smaller dogs. So a lot of your little itty-bitties, we Mm. can't even get a muzzle on. Mm. They're often too fast, (laughs) Mm. or the muzzles don't fit because they're tiny little papillons or or little little chihuahuas. So I actually find a scarf towel wrap, so a big, thick towel that wraps around their neck, from their jaw to their shoulders, is a good way of holding that head still in a comfortable fashion. Mm. And you can often control the whole dog in that way. So you've got a nice wrap twisted around their neck and then holding their body with your hands. Mm. So they can't bite you. They often can't turn the head, but you're not squashing them. Um, and and they often do feel more comfortable. But I, I've been able to, rather than desperately trying to get a muzzle on a, a little snappy dog, um, you towel wrap them, hold them close, and you can actually um, look in their eyes, their ears, their mouth, administer anything topical, even squirt syringe medication into them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it all works quite well. And it's often easier than, than wearing a muzzle. But it does take a little bit of skill because um, if you put it on inappropriately, they can wriggle out. Yeah. But they can wriggle out of muzzles too if they're not conditioned 
connection to them. So any of these management techniques or tools, you need to practice them on easy animals. The same as I recommend for cats, practice towel wraps on a fake cat before moving to an easy cat, before you try and have success with a difficult cat. And the same thing applies to dogs, including things as simple as practicing putting a muzzle on. You don't approach them front on and try and shove it on their face. You ideally get them to put their nose in it, but practice flipping it on quickly because if you try two or three times, you're not you're not going to get to a third try. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you are in those sorts of positions, this is a dog with a broken leg. I do need to examine it. I do need a muzzle on. I need to be good and mechanically efficient to, to get this gear onto him. Mm-hmm. And that might include a towel wrap. It might include a calming cap or a towel covering their eyes to allow you to put the muzzle on. There's lots of little techniques. And I think in an ideal world, we'd have more um, workshops to train people how to do that. I've, I've brought this up at a couple of clinics I've been at. Do you have a behavior advocate in your team? Because if you don't actually have someone who's got a special interest in it, um, you, you often don't have anyone bringing an understanding of behavior. We've usually got our cat guru, we've got our surgery guru and our medicine guru and our admin guru. Where is our behavior person who can lead the team and, and know how to find the resources when people have a question about how to deal with difficult behaviors? And that goes a long way to preparing protocols because you've, you've hopefully got some. They've been created around the world and we can bring those resources in to fit your particular team dynamic and your particular clientele as well. Yeah, yeah. And the calming cap, I had a look at that. It was something completely new to me. I have never used it. I haven't even seen it. I um, couldn't quite figure out how it worked until I read the description. So is that something used in New Zealand? No, not common. It's it's an American product, and so it's not used widely in New Zealand. Uh, but it is something I think we should consider. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, if, if we wanted to describe it to listeners, it's a little bit like those um, fly masks that you would put on a horse. So yeah. what you've got is is a, um, a muted view of the world as well. So with dogs, it, it's like a little hood that goes over their eyes and secures by their ears, behind their ears. And, and that, it looks like a little shower cap, mm. but it's down over their, their eyes. And what that does is dim a lot of the visual stimulus. Mm. And so people will use that for dogs that don't like traveling um, because of all the flicking and the moving. It'll do, you'll do that when you're out in a busy area, for example, and they're, they're triggered by lots of other dogs. Calming cap, I haven't had as much personal experience with it, but I've seen some good reviews and I know colleagues who use them quite a bit overseas. Mm. So I think it's something to consider. I, at this point, usually just have a towel over, over the eyes, yeah. but that comes off quickly. And, and if you've got a dog that's regularly overstimulated, it could be something the owner purchases, uses for their dog, and the dog is acclimatized to enjoy wearing it. So when they put it on, they're like, I feel a little bit more comfortable. Yeah. It's, it's made by the same people um, as the Thunder shirt. So relying on that similar supportive therapy of compression, um, chest wraps, which yeah. is how the Thunder shirt works, to reduce the physiological response. So if we can reduce the physiological responses of fear, you find that they're not going to be already aroused enough to erupt into aggression. Mm. So it's just another tool in the toolkit that we can utilize. Yeah, yeah. Another tool in the toolkit. Definitely, I like that. Um, Do you have any um, medical or draft protocol that you prefer? (laughs) Because I I think sometimes vets think, oh, it might just be easier just reaching for drugs. You know, it might be a quick solution, easy solution. It is a brilliant solution. Mm. I I remember Roz, who was our anesthesiologist at university when I was studying, 
Um, and she once said, there's no such thing as a bad horse. There's just not enough drugs. <laughs> and, and I feel like that has stuck with me over the decades. And, and it does apply. We underuse medications for fear and anxiety. We really, we feel like dogs and cats just have to cope and just mm. deal with what we're doing. And, and why? When we've got easy and safe options to make the process so much kinder on them mm. and consequently so much easier for us. Mm-hmm. So more and more um, clinics are using them, which is great. And there's lots of different protocols out there. I think what we want to pay attention to is if you're looking at using a particular drug protocol, is that alleviating their anxiety or is it tranquilizing them so they don't react? And what's important when we're using these medications regularly is that we are assessing the anxiolytic effect of it because certain drugs like ACE, melatonin, trazodone are potentially just sedating the animal but not particularly potent at alleviating the anxiety that is causing this aggressive um, response. So generally if you're asking for a go-to, I personally like to use combination medications. Often I find one by itself is not enough, which is, I think, where people have found, I tried gabapentin, it didn't work. Mm. Um, and so my my favorite is probably a combination of gabapentin and clonidine, which is working on two different parts of the brain. So we're managing to get a dampening, um, a reduction in the adrenaline rush, a reduction in the general excitation going on in the brain, which can help reduce anxiety and reduce the reactions that they're doing. Mm. But what's important with using medication prior to an admit, so pre-visit pharmaceuticals, is that you test these doses first. If you look up the drug dose range for a lot of these medications, they're massive. It's like 0.01 to to 1 mix per keg. I mean, how do you find that sweet spot? And unfortunately, as I'm... (laughs) Uh, facing every day in behavior practice, the sweet spot is different for every single animal. So mm. yeah, it's it's very difficult to get it right. So what you want to do is um, find some recommendations potentially from your local, um, your, your team members. So other vets have used it or there are some great groups that can share these, these doses. I don't like to maybe talk about them on a podcast because it's a bit specific. Yeah. yeah. Start at the lower end and then titrate up, but get the owners to test it at home. And then the other added effect is these pre-visit drugs are not designed to sedate the animal so that they are asleep in the car when they arrive. That is not what we're aiming for. And too many people expect that and therefore say, oh, the drugs didn't work. But what we want to be doing is bringing that animal's arousal level down to a level where they're more willing to accept what we need to do to them. And that may simply be an injection of dexmedetomidine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the pre-visit drugs are to, to calm the dog enough to allow us to inject them or examine them in a minimal fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, if we were giving drug doses enough for them to be completely sedate in the back of the car, that's, that's too high. That's too dangerous. That's too risky. Mm-hmm. Anything sedating an animal that much where we have not been able to evaluate the cardiovascular status is is dangerous in my mind so Mm. we only really want that level of sedation when they're already under the care of a vet um, and potentially with an injection that can be reversed so um yeah i like gabapentin and clonidine but obviously there are a few other options my colleague kat gregory was over here recently and she's a huge advocate of pre-gabalin which i'm very excited to use more of Mm -hmm. which is basically a similar version to gabapentin, mm-hmm. but we find that it's much easier to get the right dose because there's a much narrower margin to work with. Mm. It acts faster. It's much easier to administer with cats in particular because it doesn't taste as bad. So so there are these options out there. Trazodone, absolutely, it's there. We have difficulties in New Zealand because of the expense and the fact that it needs to be compounded. Mm. And and I find, although it can be useful, it's not it's not the 
the magic pill. So if people are saying, oh, I really want to get hold of Trazodone, but it's too expensive, look at other options because it's not the be-all and end-all. Mm. Um, there, there are other options to use as well. And then obviously your benzos, which I quite like, but you do have that risk of paradoxical excitation, which is the reverse of what you want to happen. <laughs> Um, so I, I think what we want to start thinking about now is there are pre-visit drug options. We should be using more of them. Mm. Have a look around, do some trials, find what works for you, um, and find what works for that individual dog. Mm. And, and you, you should find that combined with appropriate handling is going to make a big difference in the majority of your patients. Mm. Why do you... Oh, as an aside, I'm sorry I keep talking, but no, as an aside, good. those sorts of protocols are less helpful for your red dogs, the red overtly aggressive dogs, that's a whole other ball game. And that's where you may want to be getting a veterinary behaviorist or a cooperative care trainer on board to help with that animal. And and I think if, if you've got some issues with particular owners um, and you need more help, do speak to your local qualified trainers. So we do have an amazing um, uh, group membership um, group at the Association of Professional Dog Trainers, APDTNZ. And the benefit of that is you can trust that those people have some form of qualification and they follow an ethical standard. So um, they, as well as CANS, Companion Animal New Zealand, have accredited trainers and behaviour consultants. Because what you don't want to be doing is taking a fearful dog in the vet clinic, telling them to go to a trainer and ending up with those pets being in the hands of an aversive trainer who abuses them. And I see far too much of that in New Zealand. As vets, we do have a welfare and a scientific responsibility to be recommending best practice. And best practice is qualified um, uh, no force, no pain, no shock, not using tools that suppress these animals. We actually need to be caring for their emotional well-being. And so APDTNZ and CANS have trainers that you can trust in your area that you can contact. So if you're struggling, make sure you do in include those people in your plan for the owner so that we have part of the team is the vet clinic, the vet staff, the owner and their trainer that you trust that can help them with things like muzzle training, cooperative care, dealing with maybe some of the other fears and anxieties that these pets have so that the vet clinic is just another aspect, but it's not their sole traumatizing issue that, that gets worse and worse each time and, and can contribute to other issues outside of the vet clinic. Um, and they're the ones you might be starting a bit higher with the pre-visit drug and warning the owners, look, we're giving him enough drugs to calm him so that we can sedate him in the car mm. or sedate him in the consult room. Mm. And there are various techniques you can learn on how to inject a difficult dog. Mm. I can't show that on a podcast, but there, there, are, um, there are options on how to manage medications without putting yourself at risk. Mm. And those are the dogs that are pre-visit pharmaceuticals, injection, we do everything, they wake up, they go home, that's it. We don't touch them, we don't talk to them when they're awake. But those orange dogs where there's a lot we can do to make the process better, we need to be more judicious with those medications because it's going to speed up the process and minimise us re-traumatising them every time they come in. Mm -hmm. So many of the protocols still mention ACP. And um, with, you know, when we were taught, it was mentioned as being part, one of the drugs as part of your toolkit. But would you say it still has a place? It has a place, but rarely so. Um, what we want to recognize, and luckily the information has come down, that it is not an appropriate anxiolytic for fireworks. It is a tranquilizer, which basically locks in the animals to be aware of the trauma but cannot respond. Mm. But if you have appropriate drugs that are dealing with the anxiety side of it, it may be with a particularly aggressive dog 
ACP may be a component that just bring them down to a level where you can physically handle them. But you've also got something like gabapentin on board or trazodone or a similar anxiolytic that is helping modulate that fear response. Mm. But they're still really muscular and triggered and fired up. So ACP is going to bring that down a little. Yeah. I do regularly use ACP for my pre-euthanasias because I'm less concerned. Um, I often have a high level of an anxiolytic like midazolam and an opiate on board so that they're chilled and relaxed and, and pain-free and just that little bit of ACE to just mm. bring them down. Mm. Um, I don't regularly use it in any other form and I certainly don't use it orally. Mm. Um, it is, I think, along with melatonin used in the chill protocol. There are lots mm. of different chill protocols out there. Um, I think we've advanced our understanding of medications beyond that chill protocol. So some people like it because it knocks the animal. They're really, really flat. It's not something I like. Um, and, and so I think if, if you're finding that you're using that a lot, it may be worth just looking at other options or picking your cases more appropriately. There may be some dogs you don't need that level of sedation. Yeah. Um, and especially not wanting to use that in perhaps older dogs with cardiac issues or hyper... Um, thyroid or health issues that could be affected by um, an unknown um, depressive effect from from those medications. Yeah, so yeah. Um, throwing in another call, I think we should be using more benzodiazepines in our pre-meds mm-hmm. for um, the anxiolytic and the amnesic effect mm-hmm. to minimize the memory and the trauma and the anxiety that these pets feel while they're in with us. There are better drugs out there. And as I said, I think earlier before we started, we're always learning something in vet med. Yeah. Oh, Jess, I think we can carry on talking for hours and hours. It's such an interesting topic, and I can see you're really passionate about this. Um, and yes, thank you so much for your time. And no, thank you so insights. much for inviting me. As, a, as you can tell, I do love talking about it. Um, and, and I really like to see so much more interest in my favorite topic. And, and I'm very keen to teach more. Great. Thank you, Jess. I, I definitely learned something today. It was oh, so good. great okay. talking to you. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.